I'm not a kangaroo, I'm a bunny. <laughs> <laughs> This is Movie Bite, a weekly show where we discuss, praise, lament, or lampoon movies, TV shows, culture, and more. The show is hosted by me, I'm TJ Draper, and I'm joined by my co-host, Joseph Darnell. Hey, TJ. Hey, Joseph. Again. Good evening. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, for those who are listening to the podcast, not listening live, we, we just had a oopsie. We, we talked for about 10 minutes, and we had not hit record. So, whoa, uh, whoa. Yeah. Now, what we talked about uh, is my article on Joseph Gordon-Levitt um, and uh, the idea that he might be Batman in the upcoming Justice League and even Man of Steel. Uh, and that link it will be in the show notes, so we're only going to readdress it briefly here. Um, you know, I, and I explained it mostly in my article. I think it's improbable that uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt would be Batman, but not for the same reasons that uh, they mention in... Uh, the playlist blog on IndieWire. So. Hmm. Yeah, my thing about the whole um, idea of Joseph Gordon-Levitt carrying on the character of Batman is I just don't think that the audience right now is ready to see uh, someone replace Bruce Wayne altogether as Batman. I mean, we've already eliminated that Catwoman is probably not going to return, uh, there's no reason to believe that Bruce Wayne's character, played by Christopher Nolan, I mean, <laughs> Christian Bell, I always get those names mixed up, would interfere and come back to Gotham and interact with Mr. Robin, who's playing Batman. So I think that there's too many complexities. And seeing as how Christopher Nolan is out of this franchise now, and he's worried about, you know, producing other films or whatever he's going to do. And seeing like, as you you pointed out, it, it, it makes a lot of sense seeing as how Christopher Nolan has said that the new Man of Steel series is not going to have anything to do with Batman, that they're not going to uh, t- make a tie-in with uh, the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight ongoing uh, franchises. So, yeah, I just don't see it happening. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I yeah. don't either. Now, we, we kind of dove back in because we've been thrown completely off our groove, Joseph. Uh, we should mention for our audience who's not getting this live and not and, – and by the way, you can listen live. We record Wednesday night, 6.30 Central Standard Time, 7.30 Eastern Time, which is the time zone we're in right now, Joseph. You and I, Joseph, are in the same room right now, which is the first time we've done that in 21 episodes. Uh, I record from my home in Tennessee. You record from your office in Georgia. And uh, never the twain hmm. shall meet, except for tonight. Yeah, fun uh, We're recording stuff. in the same room, which is what's kind of thrown us off our game and why I didn't press record before we started because of this, you know, I'm, I'm blaming it, my poor memory to do that on <laughs> hmm. on that. So Was it the owls up on the wall behind my desk that you were looking at that distracted you? That could be it. Or maybe it's the plastic Superman over up here on your desk. Uh, you, have yeah. a lot of, you have a lot of toys up here on your desk. Yeah, as a film enthusiast i have a bunch of movie see, rem- memorabilia up on my shelf here yeah. i see buzz lightyear woody boy it's a big woody. darth vader darth optimus vader. prime yep. what's um, the guy with the glasses DeLorean. is that oh that's george washington isn't it yeah george washington he's wearing sunglasses no 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 no, no. <laughs> even better george washington's bust is wearing 3d glasses okay yeah you know like for the theater you know yeah okay 3D i get glasses. it now yeah 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 all right so uh Let's let's well, let's try to get yeah. back on track here. <laughs> see is how we are recording. Um, yeah, 
together. And um, I'm double checking the recording every <laughs> every five minutes. Now I go back to logic and I say, oh, are we recording? Yes, yes, we're recording. Yeah, so you wanted to mention how the conclusion of the Batman Dark Knight Rises Blu-ray giveaway is going to happen. Yes. Uh, now, what we're going to do, as I explained already to those listening live, and I'm sorry you have to listen again, um, I have comment cast open here, but I haven't exported the reviews yet. We have 13 total reviews on the Movie Bite podcast. I have to admit, I was hoping you all would pull through and give us a few more, because I know, according to the FeedBurner stats, that we have a few more than 13 subscribers hmm. to our podcast. Hmm. Uh, so I was hoping you'd pull through and give us uh. some reviews and help us to get a little bit of notice on iTunes. But we have 13, and of those 13, and if you submit your review now, there's a chance that you could still make it in. And uh, so uh, I have an app called Comment which pulls in the comments and the, um, the ratings and the reviews, and I will export those into a text file and go to a random generator and pick a winner. I have the Blu-ray here with me in Georgia, so we'll get it sent out as mm. soon as we can, but uh, we'll mm. announce that at the end of the podcast. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah. All right. So the next item uh, that uh, we want to talk about in our show notes is Flight of the Navigator. And I linked to an article. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Let me pull it up here. Real on quick. Filmophilia. Yeah. yeah, real quick. It's just that the Flight of the Navigator is getting a remake. And is this by Disney? Yes, it would appear so. Huh. Huh. Okay. Well, I had no earthly idea what this movie was until you introduced it. What is this? Well, Flight of the Navigator is a film from the 1980s uh, where, oh boy, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but... Uh, <laughs> did you watch it in the 80s? I did. I I remember loving it. Oh, um, okay. You know what? Hmm. L- let's do this. I'm going to pull up a, a, uh, a Smitho on Flight of the Navigator, and I can tell you, because it's been a long time since I've... Now, uh, one interesting thing that I remember... Uh, from it is that uh, the voice of Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens, was the voice of the of the robot huh. uh, of of the spaceship. Now the storyline is this: a twelve year old boy goes missing in 1978, only to reappear once more in 1986. In the eight years that have passed, David hasn't aged. It is no coincidence that at this time, that at the time David comes back, a flying saucer is found entangled in electricity cables. So that's kind of the short version of the story. Um, I'm, uh, that doesn't sound very interesting. Well, it, it's more interesting than it sounds, and yet, as I, I watched it uh, a few years ago, uh, just rewatched it, uh, you know, watching a movie from my childhood, and it was like, eh, this movie's not that great. <laughs> yeah, the original looked pretty pathetic, kind of like a, uh, you remember um, the little um, Super 8 movie that the uh, kids were making in the movie Super 8? I haven't seen Super 8 yet. It's on my list. It's on my list. It's on my list. It's on your bucket list? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, it looks like the kind of film that the kids from Super 8 were trying to make, only Disney style, or or with a Disney budget. It was just... um, Did you ever see... Um, what is that? Johnny Five Alive movies. I did. I've, I've, I have. Okay. Those looked like they were fun. I mean, even today, by today's standards, they're not really great films, but um, they were they were great for their day. And Flight of the Navigator looks a lot like a Johnny Five movie. It just doesn't look like it worked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, su- I'm surprised I'd never heard of this film. Uh, obviously, Disney doesn't care to bring it up from the vault every now and then, like they do with so many other films, so they can't be too proud of it. Uh, 
Yeah, I think when I rewatched it, uh, it's been like three or four years ago when I rewatched it. Uh, you know, just wanted to go revisit that movie from my childhood, and I think I found it at, like at a blockbuster or something. <laughs> now, not that? everything that Disney has tucked away in the vault is not worth seeing, just because it's never been brought back. Um, it brings to mind the uh, the classic from I think it was probably the ooh, early forties, maybe the late thirties, uh, called Song of the South. Did you ever see that film? I haven't. It was a live action um, slash um, c- uh, cartoon animated film about, it was a period film about a boy in the old South uh, around the time of the Civil War who's living with his mom. His father has gone to war and he grows um, close to one of the uh, slaves on the plantation, Uncle Remus. And the boy has little adventures with cartoon characters based on, uh, like, campfire stories that Uncle Remus uh, tells the boy about Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Fox and Br'er Bear. And it was a really fun little, uh, you know, flick for its day. And oddly enough, um, well, I guess it's not so odd. You know, Disney is very politically correct these days. And so they shy away from such a film that would show... Um, a lot of slaves on an old-fashioned southern plantation in a historical light. So even though the film is, for the most part, historically accurate, Disney just won't go there again. And it was an okay family film, but they just will not bring it back. Uh, the only way I have seen it is because I have um, family that's gone overseas and found bootlegged copies in China and brought them back. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so, yes, uh, a film by Disney tucked away in the vault, not available to Americans because of its political correctness, that pertains to our national history. Yes, available in China. Go figure. And um, yes, yeah, so there you go. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, based on what you say, it doesn't sound like Flight of the Navigator is actually as good as it may, um, as it ought to have been. And I guess that's why we're getting a remake. Yeah, I mean, I I really didn't need to... Uh you didn't want that part of your childhood revisited? <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't really need to see it again. You know, like I said, I, I have, like, I wouldn't say I have, like, overly fond memories of the film. But I, I have, like, you know, I, I remember liking it okay and watching it occasionally. And then when I, like I said, when I watched it again, it's like, wow, how how horrible is this? And I, I really just didn't need for Disney to go there. Um, so, hmm. yeah, I, I just I just didn't need for them to go there. So, you know, I... <laughs> My my question is why? <laughs> yeah, well, we all know why. This is just the Disney machine trying to crank out one more money maker. And you know what? Um, I think that they should look back to the uh, archives and um, re uh, and recook an old recipe every now and then when they think that they can improve upon one of their older films. I I don't. I don't slight them for that as long as they really come out with something that's superior to the original. Um, you saw the original Rescuers and then Rescuers Down Under. Yeah, right? Rescuers Down Under. I, it's the only one I watch. I don't watch the original. It was okay. horrible. Yeah, it was. It absolutely was. But the funny thing was that one time Disney decided to, rather than reboot um, the Rescuers, they wanted to do a sequel that would make up for the original. And, and you know, they're not going to say that. They're not going to say that it's a makeup for a lousy film. But that's how I feel about it, because it was so much better. Now, not everybody would agree that it's a great film, but as far as... Rescuers Down Under? 
Uh, there's a lot of people. Oh, that it's awesome. Come on now. I, I know, but based on the people that I've discussed it with, it's just one of those things, I guess, maybe you had to have been a kid when when it was out to appreciate it. But uh, I suppose. I, don't, I know. I don't but, know. But, but getting getting back to Flight of the Navigators, uh, or Flight of the Navigator, I'm sorry, it's not a plural. Um, there was one comment on my article uh, that said, this movie was awesome. What's your problem with the movie? It was pure fun. And, and I, I respect that and, and understand where you're coming from. I, I just... Dude, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> from my vantage point now, no. <laughs> so, anyway, that's that's Flight of the Navigator. They're going to remake it, and uh, they've hired a, a writer, and uh, they're going to remake it. It's going to happen. So we'll, you know, when it does, we'll watch it and we'll talk about it. Hmm. Okay. Let's do that. All right. Next on the uh, agenda here is Revenge of the Sith as great work of art. What do you think about this? Uh, this is a crazy story. Now, now, Joseph, you mentioned before we started that we should explain uh, more about the, the item before we start talking about it because some people might get confused. Yeah, this so was a post. What is this? Yeah. Okay, so this is this is pretty crazy, people. Somebody out there um, had the nerve to liken a prequel of Star Wars to quote great works of art um, on Bleed. Eating cool, um, someone had this to say. Yes, the long finale of Revenge of the Sith has more inherent artistic value, emotional power, and global impact than anything by the artist you name. Uh, what is he referring to there, TJ? I think in the article, and again, the article was one of those uh, TLDR situations. For those of you who don't know, TLDR means too long, didn't read. Um, uh, gotcha. <laughs> uh, so I don't remember if I read the whole thing, but he was. They were referring to other great works of art, paintings, and and the like. Okay, gotcha. And it's because the art world has flatlined to become an echo chamber of received opinion and toxic overpraise. It's like the emperor's new clothes. People are too intimidated uh, to admit that they are secretly thinking, um, or that they, that they would might think, huh? With their blunders, up, blinders up. Oh, okay, okay. So people are just not willing to admit what they would really think about this film if uh, they weren't influenced by the culture and others around them and their and those other people's opinions. They're just following the crowd. And you're saying, uh, what? And I can respect that. It, no, the the prequel films are not all that great. And when I say they're not all that great, I'm not saying that they're not worth seeing. Had we not had the original trilogy, and this was all that Star Wars had for us, episodes one, two, and three, I think that most audiences would go watch them and enjoy them to some degree because of their novel um, fantasy universe. I mean, like, who can resist the universe of Star Wars, even if you don't care for the an individual episode of Star Wars? Right. So I think that the general audiences would have appreciated episodes one, two, and three, had they been filmed in a chronological order of the episodes, then when episode four came out, I think that people in large part would have said, holy cow, this, this series is really stepping it up now. Now, grant you, I know special effects aren't where that they should have been um, by today's standards. Uh, this is a completely hypothetical scenario. And, um, that's where my hypothetical scenario begins to break down. But I, I just, I'm sorry. Lucas has said this before. He has said that general audiences today are just not being um, objective about it and that one day soon that they'll all come around and appreciate the the, tre the prequels for what they really are. I, I think that he's uh, he's full of himself. And I don't think that... <laughs> you think? 
yeah, th- there's no validity to this argument. The the prequels, they're not, they're not art, right? Well, the, and that, that's my that's my issue. And as I was rereading this par- this first paragraph that I quoted in the article, I don't completely disagree with the evaluation of art today. Um, you know, it's because the art world is flatlined and become an echo chamber of received opinion and toxic overpraise. It's like the emperor's clothes; people are tuned to. Yeah, I, I agree. There's a lot of stuff that's called art these days that is not art. Uh, I certainly would not compare and contrast that with Revenge of the Sith and call Revenge of the Sith great art. I, I don't get that at all. Like, what? <laughs> so that, that that was kind of what I was getting at in posting this, is like, whoa, what are, what do you mean Revenge of the Sith is great art? Uh, yeah, there are so many other works of art there. <laughs> There's like, on the top 10,000 list, I don't think the prequels of Star Wars are on there for great art. <laughs> no, I don't either. And you know what? The The link for this article will be in the show notes. Um, I put it in the chat for our live listening audience if you want to read up on that and go to Bleeding Cool and read this yes. nonsense. So you- go there and write a nasty comment. Yeah, you can do that. And so we should move on to our next... Uh, item, which is the new Star Trek Into Darkness poster. Now, Joseph, I've made no secret uh, that I am a Trek geek. I like Trek. I like all manner of Star Trek. And yes, even though J.J. Abrams' 2009 Star Trek was not quite up to my standards, uh, it was okay, and I enjoyed it, and I was looking forward and am looking forward to Star Trek Into Darkness, although I take a little issue with the name. A new poster has been released for Star Trek Into Darkness, and my first imp- I mean, the very first thing, I'm like, I didn't read anybody's reactions to it to get this, although I've seen this reaction a lot now, but I looked at the poster first, and I said, what on earth? Why- it looks so much like a ripoff of the Dark Knight Rises poster that came out uh, before the Dark Knight Rises came out. And uh, I will put a link to that in the show notes, as well as this article with with the picture of this poster, so you can compare and contrast for yourself. But I'm looking, right now I'm looking at uh, the Dark Knight Rises poster, and it's the one, uh, this is, you know, radio is theater of the mind, so um, it's the one where you're looking up through buildings, and the top of the buildings is sort of cut out with a lot of debris falling, and it's cut out in the shape of the Batman logo or symbol, and so that's the the Star Trek I'm sorry that's the Batman poster. The Star Trek Into Darkness poster is a cutout of rubble of the Starfleet Delta logo. Now, it it just it, it's just a rip off. It's you know, just a rip off. You know, what I think it is is a hodgepodge between the Batman Dark Knight Rises uh, bat symbol poster and a um thinking Revenge of the Fallen's Transformers movie poster. And that's just a crying shame. I would bet you anything that this is probably designed by the same artist that was responsible for those other movie posters, or at least one of them. Because right down to the whole, the great big pile of rubble in the foreground, which is reminiscent of things from Star, uh, Transformers posters, and the title uh, styling for Star Trek Into Darkness it looks like something straight up from these Transformers Michael Bay films. Then for the rubble that you're describing of the building uh, and the cityscape that you see in the distance, you're right. It looks like something right out of a Dark Knight poster. So, yeah, it. Uh, I think that we just have the same artist. I don't think that, that this is Abrams doing, and I wouldn't slight him for this. 
I just think that um, what the artist wanted to invoke was uh, a design that's that should instantly be recognizable because I don't know as a designer myself I, I have to say um, kudos on the one the side of this is that yes he's not trying to be very original but as far as Star Trek is concerned we have never seen anything quite like this for Star Trek it looks like this is a very grounded movie here we we find ourselves on in a city on a pile of rubble that's somewhat post-apocalyptic and there's a big old you know um leather jacketed guy standing on the pile of rubble looking away from us the, the, the even down to the leather jacket it suggests that he's Bruce Wayne donning his his Batman cape um yeah so i think that the the designer was a little bit too um clever and his own undoing because for us as designers we look at this and say hmm how uncreative are we <laughs> but exactly but yeah i think general audiences will casually glance at the poster and say to themselves oh is that the new batman film or maybe that's the next thing with tom cruise oh wait a minute that's star trek oh yeah well you know, like I said, I, I was disappointed. Um, I I just think it's such a blatant. Yeah, it is blatant. Cop- uh, copy. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe they thought that this was just very fashionable for the season. Um, yeah, remixes and all that fun stuff. Okay, so next we have here um, the Man of Steel poster, and this came now, came out pre- about the same time, right? Yeah. It. Uh, see, this was December fourth. Uh, let me see what the date was on the Into Darkness. Okay, so poster. here's the deal: is the Man of Steel yeah, um, next film day. directed by Zack Snyder has got his own new movie yeah. poster. Now, what what are we seeing here, Joseph? What what is what oh, is going on? It's glorious. That's what it is. It's um, it's Zack Snyder's um, Superman right in this poster. It's it's no other Superman you've previously seen, and for the first time we. We get a fairly decent example of what his suit, his um, super suit looks like on a poster, a fairly large. And uh, this Superman is being escorted by military troops in handcuffs. And that's all that we really know by looking at the poster. And at the bottom, it very subtly and, um, you know, secretively just says, Man of Steel, June 14th. It doesn't suggest much, but... It seems like they're ty- trying to tie in some political themes here, but I really love what it suggests. What does it suggest to you? Okay, as as a fan of art and the uh, the the meaning behind um, what a protagonist is willing to do um, to right wrongs, here Superman is sacrificially um, subservient to the government he respects even when obviously he cannot have done something wrong he's got to be in the right he's got to be falsely accused and you know he's the proverbial you know a lamb laying down his life he's 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 abiding by the letter of the law and maybe that is partially what this film will be about and uh his character his a moral upbringing and his personal um moral values just won't let him uh escape the law and in spite of the fact that he's superman the fact that he could do anything i mean we don't even need to say that 
It goes without saying that he doesn't have to abide by the the, the government in our in, in you know modern days, and a lot of people would not um, disrespect him for ignoring the rule of law. But here we find him very um, very formally wearing handcuffs, which is obviously just a show. It's completely unnecessary. He's Superman for crying out loud. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So <laughs> it's not like these are kryptonite handcuffs, people. This is just Superman walking through a building and you see military men escorting uh, him with handcuffs. I did see someone somewhere ask, Are those kryptonite handcuffs or something? Which is just ludicrous to, to yeah, think. I there's mean, nothing about these handcuffs. Because if that they were kryptonite that. handcuffs for everything we know now, unless they're changing the way kryptonite affects Superman, he wouldn't be just standing there. He'd be, you know, pretty much <laughs> Well, uh, I also would have a very hard time believing that the US government would be cruel enough to put kryptonite handcuffs on Superman. <laughs> yeah. because uh, that wouldn't just disable his hands. That would like disable him entirely. He wouldn't be able to walk. Right. That that's my point. That's my yeah. point. So um, yeah, very interesting. Now, one thing I'm not digging, uh, Joseph, is I've had quite enough of J.J. Abrams lens flares. Thank you very much. And I feel like we're going to have to put up with them in uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. It's unfortunate. And this poster, there's a pretty prominent lens flare thing going on. Yeah, there's lens flares on the titling. There's lens flares in the poster art itself. Back behind Superman's shoulder to the left, there is a, a fluorescent light that is producing a blue lens flare. Now, people, I know a little bit about graphic design. I know a little bit about natural lighting and how real lights work, photographically speaking. And fluorescent lights do not produce blue lens flares. No, not at all. <laughs> so, and they don't this is... Produce lens flares of any kind. They create a green cast <laughs> that yes. shows up in your uh, that you'd have to color correct out or whatever. But yeah, um, I, I just I can't stand the lens flares. They drive me nuts. See, that's a thing though. I wish you would. I love lens flares. I, well, okay. Let me rephrase. I like lens flares. I don't like J.J. Abrams lens flares, where seventy to eighty percent of his film is made up of lens flares. So you can't see what's going on. I don't like that. Perhaps lens flares, the way that J.J. Abrams used them, were just um, sort of a trial and error experiment. I would be surprised if even future Abrams films use lens flares to the extent that Abrams, I mean, that yeah, the Abrams did in, you know, Star Trek's film, the first one. I mean, come on. You can't really, considering all the flack that he has ga- gathered for them, I'm willing to bet you that future films that incorporate lens flares like he used and even probably his own, they're going to backpedal on those kind of like shaky cam stuff for action scenes. You know, there was a spell there where every action film had to, oh man, just nauseate you with, with shaky cam. And sort of it like seems Red like Dawn they figured it discussed. out. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they figured out that's something they should just, um, toned down dramatically i haven't seen anybody toning that down yet that that's fallen prey to that but we'll we'll see uh yeah it just the whole lens flare thing just made me go ugh (laughs) so okay yeah i'm not too crazy about it if they end up abusing the power of lens flares like they did in the star trek film yeah so you would agree with me that the star trek film 2009 star trek film from jj abrams way overused the lens flares yeah they didn't come to the point of nauseating me but you know they they were there were too many of them yeah. Okay. Well, we're we're good then. Okay. So you like, I don't to... I don't mind a good lens flare, but I just don't want in isolation a good lens flare every now and then. Yeah, it's just and... that you didn't need as many of them as they used. Yeah, and over 
overpowering, overbearing, unnatural, nonsensical. So. Yeah, okay. All right. I, I, I'm, I'm with you there. A little shaky cam goes a long way, and that's all you need. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, so Rise of the Guardians. Rise jump into of the, the Guardians. What's that? You want to jump in? Uh, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rise of the Guardians. Um, oh, that's irritating. All the links that I put in here have been changed. I, I, mm. I know it was like a bug in Google Docs. Mm. Well, while my... you're working on that, TJ, let me go ahead and just dive into the storyline. Okay. Uh, ladies and gentlemen who do not know, Rise of the Guardians is a movie by DreamWorks, and it's all about holiday fantasy children's storybook type characters. So here we go. Storyline, when an evil spirit known as Pitch lays down the gauntlet to take over the world, the immortal guardians must join forces for the first time to protect the hopes, beliefs, and imagination of children all over the world. Jack Frost is recruited by the man in the and ro- sorry, the men in the moon, like the other guardians, to thwart the plans of the boogeyman to control Earth's population with nightmares. <laughs> Now, yeah, and how, you, how, now how do, <laughs> sorry, do you, go ahead. <laughs> I, I'm just going to mention here, this is like the first time that we've um, addressed a really um, family-friendly, child-centric film. And, and you know what? Some part of me is kind of like, isn't Movie Bites podcast discussions above such things as talking about <laughs> kids' films as juvenile as this? I mean, like, is this what we've come to? Hollywood thinks a lot. You know, next week, are we going to talk about the the um, clay-animated, you know, classic the, of Rudolph the, the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Joseph, I'll mention again, we're sitting here in your office, both of us together for the first time, and you're talking about... <laughs> Movie by juvenile reviews, and and I'm looking at a shelf full of action figures and Darth Vader and Spider Man and Superman and Woody and Buzz, um, and and you've got a picture of Superman on your wall and a picture of, of a pig poster of Spider Man, and you are afraid that we're going to be getting too juvenile on the Movie Bite podcast reviewing Rise of the Guardians. I just hey. have to ask. Okay, in my defense, <laughs> I am an artist. And everything is taken seriously as an artist. And you know what? Real adults, TJ, made those movies and brought to us television shows like Transformers. Okay, well, didn't and, real adults uh, make Rise Toy of the Guardians? Oh, I see where you're going with this. Oh, right. Okay, so what you're saying is Rise of the Guardians is for parents and children alike. And it's, it's I think ostensibly, yes. adults. And, you know, it should be entertaining for all audiences, right? Yeah, I, I think ah. that's, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so that's why we're talking about a kid's film on movie by Ah, got it. Yep, good. All right, glad we're there. Now, I, I want to say at the outset, uh, before we really start digging into Rise of the Guardians, that I'm predisposed not to care for this movie too much. And, and, and the reason is this. As, as a father of three children, um, I have always found it strange that, that most parents in the United States, certainly, or that I know – feel it necessary to lie to their children or tell them this these strange truths or not truths but lies but tell them these lies as though they're truths about santa or the easter bunny uh and certainly joseph as a christian uh i think there's lots of good things we can tell our children about christmas that don't involve today's version of santa claus now we can get into the whole saint nick argument and talk about how, what you know whether he was a good role model or whatever and, and and but 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 today santa claus has no resemblance to saint nick 
of mm. of, of that time mm. of, of the that long ago. So yeah. my, I'm predisposed not to like this film because I do not lie to my children about Santa Claus. Yeah, and people, people, please understand we're not like you know Ebenezer Scrooge and the no, Grinch I, that stole Christmas. I and, love Christmas. Yeah, we're not stomping all over the holiday spirit. I mean, come on, Merry Christmas, people. But uh, I have to agree with you, TJ. Um, I just don't see the point in telling my children that Santa brought those gifts that I paid for with my own good money and brought to them and never get the credit for it. Right. Now, now the reason we're talking about this is going to become relevant as we get into our discussion of Rise of the Guardians. Yes, because Rise of the Guardians has a lot to do with a lot of holidays. And, you know, it has to do with the make-believe behind the Tooth Fairy and the Sandman, which no one really addresses anymore. Um, and then there's Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. So uh, the film makes the premise that characters like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny are very important, very important to children. You mean uh, Bunnymund and North? Yes, <laughs> they are given completely new names at Rise of the Guardians. Um, well, I, I wouldn't say that they're new names. Well, no, no, no. Think about it. Uh, North is a new name. I mean, right. What it connotates is something uh, – it is synonymous with Santa Claus. But it's the first time that anybody made Santa Claus a Russian fellow and that he went by the name North for an entire narrative and no one ever referred to him as Claus. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the Easter Bunny, you know, he they, they address a little bit whether or not he's comfortably, you know, comfortable being called the Easter Bunny in the film. And typically he goes by Bunny. Or- <laughs> so what do you, what do you think about all kangaroo, this? I'm not a kangaroo. I'm a bunny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very proudly. He, uh, he carries around a, a very pointy boomerang and he, he what, what did they say? He's six foot two. I think it was something like that. Yeah, and he's voiced by Wolverine of X Men. Oh, I, I love that Hugh Jackman. Uh, that was the one thing I truly did love was Hugh Jackman as the Easter Bunny was absolutely awesome, just fantastic. Yeah, I, I mean, just the the concept is utterly fantastic. We don't care if it was well executed, people. It was really just something that made this film worth watching. At least all the scenes involving the Easter Bunny. Yeah, <laughs> it was definitely. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that a lot. You know, I watched the entire film and didn't recognize that the voice of Claus was brought to us by Alec Baldwin. I recognized the voice, but I, it didn't occur to me it was Baldwin until I looked it up in the cr- me credits. Me either, but I can't say that I'm that familiar with Baldwin. Um, yeah, he, he's done some other children's yeah. stuff, so I was kind of familiar with his voice. All right, now, Rise of the Guardians, Joseph, it had a budget of $106,401,601. Okay, so where did they come up with this figure, $601? I, you know, I don't know. And when I, when, I did the, uh, when I did the outline, Box Office Mojo was down, so I should double-check that on Box Office Mojo. I guess DreamWorks is far more um, okay. uh, stickular for being absolutely accurate with the details they publish to the, the you know the public the, the <laughs> box office mojo site is back online and they're saying 145 million so i trust that figure a lot more i think Whoa. i pulled i think i pulled the figure i put in our show outline in google docs from uh wikipedia which i don't trust for anything because it's mm. a you know in either case these are estimated figures True. This is true. So, estimated production budget of 145 million on Box Office Mojo. Now, um, opening weekend uh, has uh, it only brought in 23 million 773 thousand dollars. Huh. 
in a three day weekend, but in the extended that, weekend, it did uh, it a that's little a good better. question. I'm looking this. I'm getting this figure mm. from Box Office Mojo. I would assume that's the three day weekend. Eh, that's pretty good for a movie that most people will regard as a you know a Christmas film that comes out November 21st before Thanksgiving. So uh, you know, I guess that doesn't really have any bearing to their ultimate success because. I mean, think about it. Come Thanksgiving, if anybody was going to the movies, they were more inclined to watch Wreck-It Ralph by Disney and uh, this film to be saved for Christmas holidays. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, now worldwide, the uh, so far, up, up to the minute, uh, let's see, I, uh, Box Office Mojo doesn't say when it was updated, but currently they're showing 107,179,000 worldwide total box office results. Huh. So it, it may it may make it up there, and it may make its budget. That is really decent, because what that reflects is that the uh, film is doing far better internationally than it is in the U.S., and that's not always, that's not typically the case. Um, because this film involves um, actors, uh, characters even, due to the actors that cast uh, those characters uh, that are international um, characters, you know, presumably the boogeyman voiced by Jude Law is supposed to be uh, from the UK in his origins and the Easter Bunny from Australia. My guess is that, the, is that DreamWorks was really trying to appeal to, oh, and Santa Claus from Russia. I mean, come on. It's obvious that they were trying to draw an international audience with this film. I'm surprised. I, I, I guess they're getting really smart about this because they knew for this film to pay for itself, they would need to drive that home. Yeah. Now, I, and again, uh, I, I will say this of all the, if any, if any problems that I have with this film, um, the casting in the characterization, actually, it was really great in my opinion. I, I, I loved the idea taking taking the Santa Claus and kind of turning it on its head. And now Santa Claus is this Russian guy with uh, he even kind of had some tattoos on his arms, naughty or nice. And, you know, it's a burly Russian guy. And, uh, <laughs> you know, is when he kidnaps Jack Frost and brings him in and, and uh, Jack Frost says, uh, who, you know, after I was, you know, thrown in a bag and thrown through a portal and, and uh, you know, Santa Claus is like, oh, you like that? Uh, good that was my idea you know (laughs) um oh dear well rise of the guardians so what do you say um do we like this film tj what do we like about this uh, film well again like i said i like the characterization i liked that they didn't just take and copy kind of the uh, what we already know or the, the any of the lore or mythos as far as i know that was already out there so as, as far as i know they kind of recreated this mythos and and came up with this idea that these characters the sandman uh the easter bunny um the tooth fairy and santa claus were kind of banded together as guardians of children i i, I actually kind of liked that concept it it worked well for me in in some ways I think the execution left a lot to be desired, um, but I, I did like that. And, and and like I said, I really enjoyed the characterizations, especially Hugh Jackman's Bunny Rabbit and uh, Alec Baldwin as uh, North. Uh, the main thing that I really enjoyed was, yes, the creativity put into the characters presented. You know, um, a Russian Santa Claus? I can see it now. It makes perfect sense, but I never pictured it before now. And then yeah. they tie in not just these fantasy characters, but to make it a, um, more relevant to, to the global population, 
they they actually have several kid characters that play very important roles in the story. It would have been so easy for them to approach this film kind of like a Toy Story movie where the kids don't actually have all that much do influence on the activity of the toys unless it's a villain that's trying to, you know, melt their plastic or sell them to the highest bidder. In this case, the kids in the story are very critical to the lives and the the mission that the Guardians mean to accomplish. Uh, that was very effective, that they incorporated these kids. It could have very easily, like uh, an old classic, uh, did you ever see any of the, oh man, this is a dark part of my childhood. Did you ever see any of the Raggedy Ann movies? No. Raggedy Ann and Andy got some cartoons, I think probably produced by Hanna-Barbera or something back in the <laughs> 80s. Right. And uh, yeah, it was literally this, oh, it was like, why? Why, Hollywood, please spare us? Because they would have Raggedy Ann and Andy um, off on an adventure with other toys and, you know, uh, talking animals for an hour but they never would involve real people or real settings or the real world. They were <laughs> off dealing with yeah. crazy vultures as the bad guys that nobody had ever heard of. <laughs> and uh, it would have been very easy for them to fall into that trap to make a lesser story, to make a very uncreative story right, yeah. for this one. The boogeyman is trying to control the, the, the Earth's population of children. Mm-hmm. And then it's up to Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and Jack Frost – to earn their love and attention and their, uh, this is where it falls apart for me, their beliefs, their belief in them. Right, and this is where the relevancy of what we were saying a little bit ago comes back in, uh, which is I, I am not a fan by any means uh, of lying to my children about the nature of the world <laughs> and telling them that Santa Claus brings them their toys and they must they need to believe and have this childlike faith in these uh, things. Yeah, and you know, it wouldn't be so bad if this was something like Peter Pan where they're introducing Tinkerbell and, you know, you gotta develop her so, you know, she's gotta die. And then Hook has got to, you know, stomp all over the idea of having fairies and then Peter Pan has to, you know, urge the audience to cheer for, you know, believing in fairies. Because it's it's like it just works and it's so absurd that a, adults want to even join in the t- into the chant and right. and it's only one little myota of the story well and i like do, that's not what the whole movie or story of peter pan is about so you can buy into the ridiculousness of it yeah and i do want to be careful because i don't have a problem with fantasy per se um, I don't have a problem with the nature of the universe being different in these fantasy worlds, but there was just something about this that was a little off-putting in that way to me. And again, I freely admit it's because of where I come from and the and and my whole explanation that I've already been through of of that. So no, I totally agree with you, TJ. It was off-putting because this film kept driving home the the point in so many scenes where characters were stressing the importance that children believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. I mean, come on. Yeah. Um, if my children were to watch a film like Peter Pan, uh, they wouldn't come away really believing that they must believe in fairies. And, you know, if my daughter wanted to play pretend, you know, little, you know, scenarios with her dollies and the like that, you know, fairies were real and Tinkerberry, Tinkerberry, Tinkerbell is real, <laughs> I wouldn't mind. But with this movie, I'd be a little conscientious as a parent that doesn't want my children believing in Santa Claus because 
The movie time and again stresses the importance to the audience that the characters have got to get children to believe that they're absolutely real. Yeah. To to defeat the boogeyman. Yep. And I think a child wants to believe in that. Sure. Yeah, so ultimately, uh, you know, it, it was kind of hard for me to put that aside personally. And, yeah, uh, it is difficult. But and besides that, I have a review that we're going to be posting to moviebyte.com tomorrow. And besides the whole issue of whether or not you want your children to believe in Santa Claus, my other bigger beef was just as an, an adult in the audience that would consider watching this film with his family. There were way too many plot contrivances. And I get the, into those more deeply in my review. Yeah. I, I completely agree about the plot contrivances. There there were times when the, the plot felt forced beyond believability. And we're already talking about a film that you don't have to believe too hard because, um, I, mean, I mean, you're already suspending your disbelief because you're at an animated film about these characters. But the plot was so contrived in some places and felt so forced. I, I just, you know, it, it was just... Hard to swallow. Yeah, here's an example. Um, okay, so like a two-year-old little girl happens to see this portal that Santa Claus has that allows her to walk into the realm of the Easter Bunny, which is supposed to be like a magical land that kind of looks like something out of Alice in Wonderland. And so the little girl wanders into the Easter Bunny's world, and for a few scenes, these characters don't even know about it. But when they find themselves back at the Easter Bunny's lair, they happen across the little girl, and they instantly think to themselves, "Ah, she snuck in through the portal." And throughout the movie, that they've tried to they've tried to ground it with a lot of reasonable features. I mean, realistic, wor- real world um, scenarios where mommy and daddy are concerned about the well being of their children, and children must b- obey their parents, and children should not just you know walk away from their houses, and it's right. dangerous to yes. have a sleigh ride in the street. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, if they're going to establish all this. Assumably, what should you know? Characters like Frost and North and the Tooth Fairy do with a two-year-old in their midst? Well, instantly they would lead the child back to its home and safety, right? No, in the movie, it just felt right that while the Easter Bunny spends a few more months or weeks, we're not really sure, producing all of his eggs for the holiday uh, that is Easter. Uh, the little girl is with them and helps them along the way, and they establish a connection with her, and they spend all of those, that time together. Oh, that's so sweet. You know, and then they send the child back home come Easter. Um, I'm sorry, people, but um, what? Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. <laughs> and, but the thing is, you might say, ah, oh, that's excusable, Joe. You're just being too hard on the film. The problem was, I felt like I saw things like this happening in practically every scene or every sequence. Yeah. And and, and it just piled up. Yeah, I agree. And, 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 you know, questions arose in my mind like, uh, what is this man in the moon doing? And why? Well, I, I, you, 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 I think you summarized it more succinctly than I could earlier uh, when we were talking before the podcast. Uh, what was it you said about the man in the moon, Joseph? No, the man in the moon is a deity. He's he's the god, and he um, wills and so chooses how the guardians and their behavior will unfold. He dictates that the guardians must be there to protect the hope and dreams of children. Yeah. 
And so that's why he has a Sandman. He's there to give kids good dreams. And that's why he has Santa Claus, to give children good hope. And uh, the same thing for the Tooth Fairy, you know, that that life is worth living and it will be better someday. And not to make it too harsh on children in their adolescence. And then along comes the Boogeyman and he's making life miserable. So what does the Man in the Moon do? He has set up... Very difficult, difficult circumstances to where if the boogeyman can rid the world of good dream, night dreams and, uh, and, you know, give children nothing but nightmares. And should the boogeyman manage to get children not to believe in Santa Claus, then Claus ability to produce gifts and to deliver them come Christmas Day will collapse. His his magical powers will collapse. Those magical powers that the man in the moon gave Claus. <laughs> right. Those magical <laughs> you know, in fact, it's suggested that the, the man in the moon even made magically Claus have his very existence. So the man in the moon has set up his um his guardians for failure. It seems Should, pretty weak, yeah. Yeah, it, it doesn't make much sense because, well, who created the boogeyman? He seems to abide by the same rules, but right. because he's the bad guy, he has power, and yet he could have been the the holiday spirit of the of Halloween. Yet that's never explained in the film why he is or isn't. And then he can thwart, you know, the Easter Bunny. And when people stop believing in the Easter Bunny and their eggs are not delivered properly by the Easter Bunny, then the Easter Bunny starts to turn back into an ordinary rabbit and loses his human-like appearance. Uh, and so the man on the moon is the deity that has made it extremely impossible and nonsensical for the Guardians to abide by um, their scenario to help children all, all over the world have a good time and enjoy the holidays. All of this for the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joseph, it sounds like you really enjoyed this movie and are going to rate it really highly and give it a really big, high star rating. Oh, yeah. I'm, I loved it so much, I'm going to give it two out of five stars. <laughs> there you go. So, little, little less than uh, ambivalent here. You know, uh, two stars out of five, that's, that's you know... Eh. You kind of didn't like it, mm, and that's. No. Uh, I was thinking two and a half, and then I've I've also modified my rating, and I am also going to give it two out of five stars. But grant you, if you're not being hard on this film, and if you were just watching it for entertainment value, I mean, to be honest, if I weren't reviewing this for Movie Bite, I don't think I'd be so. Uh, um, I wouldn't be studying the film as I am. And so to be fair, I think general audiences aren't either, and they could probably enjoy this film more than someone who's thinking about what they're watching. For entertainment, for for amusement value, the film is doable. It, it's the best holiday film there is. It's practically the only one. Yeah, you're talking about new films. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. Well, I think that kind of sums up our feelings on Rise of the Guardians, and we're we're really going to be running out of time here if we don't move on. So, high gear. All right, Men in Black Three. Um, I wanted to watch this film, knowing that it's now out uh, for home entertainment, because I didn't get a chance to see it in the theater. Uh, it it came out in the theater before we started Movie Bite, and my movie budget was less at the time, and uh, for many a multitude of other reasons. But I really enjoyed uh, Men in Black and Men in Black Two. Men in Black Two, possibly even more. Hmm. Um, and, and I've, I watch them occasionally. And even though they're not like super serious films with serious plots, um, 
Now, why did you say you think you liked Men in Black 2 more than one, the first? I, I felt the other way around it. I thought it was pretty obvious that 2 wasn't as good as 1. Well, what makes you say that? Uh, well, I guess ultimately that I appreciated the introduction to the the fantasy that is Men in Black. I, I really enjoyed the origin story. Right. It, it was one that really excelled. And then when it came to the sequel... I think it was rather forgettable. Hmm. And right now, honestly, I, I could not tell you anything about um, Men in Black 2. I, I cannot remember anything about it, except that the villain was a woman. Well, I, like, I, I don't remember, was she a Serlina. witch? Was she an alien? Serlina. She was an alien. Okay, see, that's the thing. Is like, seriously, <laughs> it just, that movie did nothing for me. It, it, nothing stuck in my mind. And see, the whole thing stuck in my mind. I, you know, uh, how do you quantify something like this in a way you know i i liked it you didn't like it i I don't know i really enjoyed it um i thought if anything it was funnier than the first one uh i felt like the chemistry between jay and k which is uh, you know uh tommy lee jones and uh will smith i felt like it was better and enhanced even more uh and you know you've got this uh the the first one kind of ended with K retiring, quote unquote, which I, I thought was kind of a downer. Why didn't these two? They had such great chemistry. Why didn't they go off together fighting evil? And and the second film brought them back together. Um, and so I I I enjoyed the second film for that. Uh, you, you know, you had this. Um, and again, I, I talk about this this love story or whatever. None, none of the film is to be taken seriously. None of the either uh, none of the three films is to be taken seriously. They're all for laughs, you know. But 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 at the same time, your best comedy films have good plot, uh, I think. And so I don't know. I I, I just thought that uh, I thought that the second film was did a little bit better job than the first mm. film. But I enjoy both the first two Men in Black films. And so that's why I wanted to watch uh, Men in Black 3, and I did. And uh, so, okay, we, we should give our audience a little bit of background about Men in Black in general. Because we're, we're talking about these films, and they're played for comedy and, and all this, but we haven't really given our audience the idea of what Men in Black is as a franchise. Right, and uh, the real, really, uh, real quick, people, the reason that Men in Black 3 is a topic of discussion right now is because it just came out on a home entertainment release. Right. So yeah, a lot of people I, are going to catch it now. Interestingly, I didn't realize that it had just come out because I, I saw it on iTunes uh, right before we did the show last week. And, and uh, I, I looked it up and said, oh, it's it's out. Who knows how long it's been out? I just want to talk about it. So, But it is it is just recently released to Home Entertainment. So it is appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Lucky All right. Strike. So Men in Black. And uh, the first film kind of set us up. Our, uh, the Men in Black. Uh, what happened in the, in this fantasy world is... Uh, there are aliens, and they have visited Earth, and there is an organization that polices and monitors alien activity on the planet Earth without, you know, as, as Agent K says, Tommy Lee Jones says at one point, most people don't know and don't care that aliens are here on Earth, and our job is to see that it stays that way, basically. And uh, he recruits uh, James, I can't remember his last name because he becomes Agent J, um, but he, re- he recruits Will Smith uh, because Will Smith ran down... Oh, I can't remember the name of the alien, but ran ran down this guy on foot, chased him down, and and did this really great job or whatever. And uh, so he recruits him into Men in Black, who who are pol- the organization that polices and monitors the aliens. Um, and so that's kind of the premise: is that that there's aliens and they exist, and these guys save the world all the time and police and monitor aliens, and nobody ever knows about it. 
And as you can imagine with Will Smith in the movie, there's a great comedy. And, and interestingly, strikingly, uh, you don't think of Tommy Lee Jones necessarily as a funny guy. He's a very serious, dry, straightforward kind of guy. But when you put Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith together, there's something magical going on here that I can't quite explain. It, it, it's, it's hilarious. It is. And, you know, I can't say that I would like to see Tommy Lee Jones in a sci-fi. And, you know, I was actually skeptical about this a few weeks ago, that he wouldn't work very well in Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. Mm. But as it turns out, he's a pretty decent actor. And well, he excels in, yeah, this sci-fi and in the uh, the historical drama. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, just as a side note, as far as Tommy Lee Jones' acting ability, you need, you need to look no further than The Fugitive. Uh, the Fugitive is a great film. Uh, Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones. Um, yeah, I totally agree. It's and he's, one of my he's, favorites. He's a fantastic actor, no doubt about that. So, But now he's getting pretty old. And he is. And, and you know, when we came to Men in Black 3, uh, my, my, my initial reaction when I heard about Men in Black 3 was like, uh, cool, awesome, I, I've been waiting for this. And then I kind of started, we, the trailers came out, and it became obvious that they were replacing, at least for some part of the movie, uh, Agent K with a younger actor because Will Smith's character, Agent J, had to go back in time to fix things, which is completely within the realm of, of the sci-fi fantasy comedy of Men in Black. But it just kind of off, it was off-putting to me. It's like, the chemistry here is not between the characters, but between the actors. Why are we removing one of those actors? Uh, it, it did work far better than I thought, but I still have that question. What what made you go for a plot that would separate the two that had such great chemistry? Um, I think it works, obviously, because the story is fairly original. It's not like based on a comic book or anything, right? Uh, Men in Black is based on comic <gasps> books. Really? Because yes. I was going to say, it seems it seems like it's a shoe-in for a comic book. Um, I guess, there you go, people. Um, um, uh, yeah, everything I, is going back to comic books these days. Well, you know, mm, I wonder how old the character is that uh, is Agent K in the comic books, because I just cannot imagine him being a younger guy. And in Men in Black 3, they they explored something that just made perfect sense to tell. Like, you know, now seeing Men in Black 3, I would have thought the story would be excellent as a television spinoff series. Oh, because I completely agree. I've always thought that. I thought this would make a great television series. Now, you've got, you know, movie class actors. You'd have, you know, you'd have to get different actors. And right, but could you hard. imagine them just uh, telling the story of Agent K in the 1960s? You know, I could see that. Sure, yeah, that would make a great tv series yeah for men, sure yeah so men in black 3 kind of sets the tone for that possibility where you see a, 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 a agent k from the 60s and so here's the brief synopsis after breaking out of a moon-based maximum security prison boris the animal a very criminal alien goes back in time and murders agent k who arrested him in 1969 when boris does this agent j realizes that the timeline of the universe has been changed Agent J travels back to uh, July 15th, 1969, the day before Agent K is killed. Agent J manages to convince K and others at MIB who he is and why he's there. But, but with the help of, uh, of a being who can see all timelines, some other alien, they track Boris down at the launch of Apollo 11. 
And uh, Jay also learned something about himself, something Kay knew and never told Agent Jay. So the story furthers their character development for sure. And I could appreciate that because I had to wonder how much of this was explored in the source material. Now, now I do anyway. I wonder how much of this is actually based on the comic book story. And it was, uh, it was nice to see them return to this world and pay homage to the things that really worked. Yeah. Um, you know, the, thankfully they kept the cast consistent with those things that mattered to the MIB, um, franchise that we really like. They could have, um, ventured into the possibility of, um, it seems like it doesn't happen very often these days, but movies used to frequently change up their cast as need be when they couldn't get some big name at the price that they wanted them for. I think maybe producers have learned their lesson because I can't remember the last time that a big budget Hollywood film tried to use a lesser actor just to save a few bucks when they couldn't get the big star to come back for a sequel. Um, these days, I think that actors respect sequels and think that they are um, they are pr- pretty good things. It seemed like in the 80s, actors didn't respect sequels. They hadn't been done all that much. Mm-hmm. They felt too much. Uh, they felt too episodic, like what television was doing. And, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s, people in Hollywood st- were still griping and, and disputing uh, the merits of episodic serials. And, you know, uh, Hollywood in general, there was the the elitist type artists that thought that movies were transcendent, great, significant works of art and that television would just never get there. Um, I think that we're far beyond that now. And now a lot of actors take quite seriously their characters in animated films and in sequels to live action films and the like. So it's good. I think that we're, you know, as much as we in the audience like to complain that we're tired of sequels and we're tired of reboots and we're tired of seeing reprises that, um, there is a lot of merit to sequels because if they can further the characters, if they can produce yet a new, um, creative arc, even in something as crazy as a comedy slash sci-fi as Men in Black, then we're willing in, uh, to see it if, it if it really works, if it pays off. So, yeah. I don't know. Um, you're going to write the review for this thing. What do you think? I am, and I, I've meant to write before now, and I haven't had time. Um, I, I, here's kind of how I feel about it. Um, and I'll have to do my general overall impressions because I haven't sat down and really dug into it yet. Um <sighs> I felt like it got off to a slow start. I was I was prepared to be disappointed after such a slow start. I I, I wondered where where we were going and what was going on and and why why was it so slow? Why weren't we getting into the action and the chemistry? But by the time the film was over, I was very satisfied with what had taken place. Um, surprisingly so. Um, I I. I I was uh, amazed at how well integrated the story was in the Men in Black universe. I was amazed just at how uh, – I, I, well, let me back up and, and just talk about that a little bit. The I, It was a plot twist that I didn't see coming, and this this is going to be spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen the film. Uh, you may you, you may want to cover your ears, but shame on you for not seeing the film. <laughs> um, I was amazed that it worked so well that, that Jay – Kay had actually met Jay, Jay as a young kid, and it turned out that this guy that helped them get the timeline straightened out was his father, Jay's father, and and Kay had kind of made provision for him. I mean, there's a lot of implication going on here, 
and uh, it was uh, it was very even for a, such a comedy a dramedy whatever you want to call it <laughs> dramedy <laughs> um, even like for that. such a comedy film it was a very kind of moving moment when when that kind of came about and uh, it, it worked well because we had already established the chemistry that would come about later between Jay and K and uh, and then you know when Jay is back in the present day and he shows the watch. Uh, that that uh, Kay had told Jay. Boy, this is getting convoluted and hard to explain. But but, yeah. but Kay had given Jay a watch and told him it was his father's watch. And so when Jay is back in the present day, he shows it to Kay, who just sort of nods oh, knowingly. Man, you're giving away all the spoilers. Well, I, I said spoiler alert. I'm all sorry, right. guys. Sorry, people. If uh, any of your friends and loved ones have not yet heard this episode and you know that they're going to see this film later and have not as of yet, then please don't let them listen to this episode until they <laughs> watch the film. So, in, in any event, I, I found it a very satisfying film, and, and it sort of picked up steam and speed as it rolled along. And I was, um, you know, for, for going in my skepticism of how well the chemistry would be present between the two characters when I felt like the, the, the chemistry was between the actors, the chemistry actually was still pretty much there. Not as fully as it could have been, which is why I question the why would you do that? Why would you want to go there with it? Uh, I kind of wondered if um, the chemistry was weakened by uh, two things. One, people thinking that the whole movie uh, revolved around Will Smith and it was all about him. Therefore, he was the one who had to really sell it. And then two, I just kind of got the impression from the entire um, execution of the cast that they were just, it was kind of like they were filming this on their day off. They they didn't act like they they regarded the story. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like they were trying to sell the audience on something. It was more like they knew, hey, you know, come our day off and the day off of the audience, they're going to go watch this film just because what the heck? They're it's like we're old friends and we're used to each other. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I I didn't feel like. Um, Tom, you know Tommy Lee Jones really sold his performance. For instance, even though he was his same old self, he was very truly um, his same old. Uh, what would you call it? Uh, just like you, you described earlier, you yeah, know, dry, s- and uh, subdued, subdued, dry, um, blunt self. Uh, it seemed like he's he's an older man who's just you know kind of set in his ways and he's just coasting along and oh somebody wants to make another movie about this uh okay oh well well what are my lines uh, okay I'll just say these things and we'll get it over with well and you know he well he's only sixty six years old it's obvious to me that he's aging rapidly he and, is and at it's his possible age. that had something to do with it yeah and you know you know I, I I'm not saying I don't want to see Tommy Lee Jones anymore but you know given that this film production was going on around the time of Lincoln and I saw what he could do as his character Thaddeus Stevens in the movie Lincoln I know that that guy's still got a lot of raw acting talent and capability and he if he gave it any effort he could have done a whole lot better yeah um, but yeah I think perhaps they just didn't view the substance to be there this is not a film to be taken seriously it's about your amusement and it's a sci-fi comedy so what the heck people you know we're just going to throw this out there and uh, it came out in May, so one would expect this film to be a, a very uh, big hit, a big sell. And what did this film do? Uh, what was its budget? Well, the budget was $225 million, so they, they dumped a lot of money into this thing. I mean, that's, Ooh, that's a lot of money. 
that, mm. that's that's up there in the Avengers territory. It's just yeah. kind of strange. That's a lot of work and, on aliens. And not only it paid off for them. I mean, domestically it hasn't done super great, but worldwide it's it's you know it's made well the money back at six hundred and twenty four million. Um, it's it's done very well worldwide. Yeah, domestically, yeah. Um, domestically it's only made one hundred and seventy nine million, and the opening weekend was fifty four million. So it was a great opening weekend, but then it sort of you know didn't do so well afterwards. So a lot of people didn't go back to see it a, a second time. Like that's a lot of where box office, excuse me, where box office returns come from is they go and see it. People go and see it. And then they come back with their friends. Right. And, uh, that didn't quite happen with this film. So, uh, maybe a lot of people weren't as excited about it. Now, uh, that said rotten tomatoes, the audience is giving it a 72%, uh, approval rating critics, 69%. So even the critics weren't too harsh on it. um, so and, and on IMDb it has a seven point a seven out of ten. Uh, so you know it's it's people have not been unhappy with it. Hmm. And like I said, I I actually by the time it was over, it's it's right up there with the best of the Men in Black series. I was very pleased with it. Hmm. So you know I don't know. I I guess I disliked it more than I liked it, but I kind of weigh that and ask myself. Does that mean that I wouldn't watch this film again if I were to revisit the Men in Black series? No, I, I would watch it. I would watch it with anybody. Anybody listening to the podcast, you want to come over to my house and watch this with me? I would. Um, Is that an open invitation? Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> come on over. If you bring the popcorn in the movie, then you know we'll, I'll sit down with you. Speaking of which, since we're well, man, we we got to catch a movie together this weekend. Oh, yeah. Um, hmm. Maybe that chick flick. The the one with... Uh, right. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. We're, almost, we're almost done here. I don't have much more to say to you. I, I just... Okay. The thing is... Men in Black could have explored a whole lot of. Uh, it seems like the time travel thing is a little bit overdone and overcooked in Hollywood films right now. Like we just had a Looper, which really yeah, yeah. delved deeply into time travel. This film deals with something in the way of time travel of astronomical proportions. Right, and the guy's got to go back in time. He has to set so many things straight, and while he's back in time. There, he he doesn't make any mistakes. He doesn't do anything that should undo the course of history. There's nothing that happens that has a lasting negative impact on the future. Everything that they do just sets history straight again, so that when he returns, everything is back to normal. Well, and they played it such that it was everything that Jay did was part of history as we already knew it. To me, it was the equivalent of having a movie with a Death Star in it, and the Death Star doesn't ever shoot anything. <laughs> you cannot have you cannot have time travel and not introduce some real negative problems brought on by the protagonists. Grant you the villains, you expect them to produce some negative cause cause and effect scenarios from time travel, but you don't do that with. Yeah, you don't allow the protagonists to just go in there, write some courses of history, and get back to their own time to where that they can, you know, sit down and enjoy a blueberry cobbler and a banana, you know, a banana <laughs> split and an apple pie. So, well, I mean, you know, it's legitimate. I mean, I, I certainly, when I first heard that they were doing time travel in Men in Black Three, I was like, ugh, really? Come on, we, we there's there are better plots, people. But, you know, like I said, I, I was pleasantly surprised, personally. I'm, I was very happy with the film. So, so, since the film was such an international success, can you picture them making a Men in Black 4? I think it's going to happen. Yeah? I can't imagine it not happening. Hmm. 
Okay. I haven't heard anything, but I mean, come on, six hundred million? Can't you see them making another one? Yeah, that's nothing to sniff at. A lot now, of movies don't do this, that well. I, I started to say this earlier, and I got sidetracked. Um, my understanding, and I, I don't know how to confirm this, I haven't taken the time to look it up, but my understanding was that Will Smith himself was a driving force behind getting this film made. Like, he enjoyed the other films so much that he was ready to come back and, and revisit the series. Oh, okay. And so, it may be dependent on him, too. Like, if he wants to do another one, if he was happy with it. Interestingly, too, I noted that they had the same director now for all three. And I think the same musical artist, uh, Danny Elfman. Yeah, and that is something that is very consistent about all three. I, I have to admit, I'm very glad. It, it feels very consistent across the board that they have the same director and he's faithful to what he wants to do. It's yeah. not, it's, this is not Sam Raimi pulling a fast one with, you know, Spider Man 3. It's nothing like that. Yeah, and again, <laughs> you know, we're talking about this film in such, uh, depth and analysis and whatever it's not a film to be taken that seriously none of the men the men in black is a comedy series you know and and that's you enjoy it for that and and again like i said earlier um i feel like the best comedy though has good plot and and this i think you know ultimately it had a pretty decent plot Mm, okay so so what do you rate it 3.5 three and a half three and a half stars out of five out of five Uh, okay well, I, I'm giving it two and a half. I, I feel kind of fair. I feel like yeah. that's fair. I, that's a very neutral stance. I'm not saying it's bad. It's not. Say, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it's right in the middle there. Um, Men in Black One, I'd give a higher rating for sure. And um, like I said, the the forgettable Men in Black Two. Maybe I need to watch it again um, since you like it so much. I mean, obviously, I respect your opinion, TJ. So, you, you, what would you say Men in Black Two and One were in your opinion? How would they rank? Ooh. You know, I would probably rank them all three and a half stars. I mean, I, I just, I, I can't, I can't see giving them any of them four, but I like them all, and I like them all pretty much equally at this point. With you know, maybe two rises above a little bit, but not enough for me to change the rating. Yeah, I can see what you mean there. Yeah, it's not like ooh, so great you got to so, watch so it. So for me, again. three and a half is yeah. I'll sit down and watch this film once in a while, and certainly would recommend it. Hmm. Uh, you know, okay. that, that's kind of how I feel about it. So. Mom, I'm looking forward to your, your review. You going to have that out tomorrow, you said? I'm going to try to crank it out tomorrow. I've got a lot tomorrow to do tomorrow. Tomorrow being but... the day that we publish the podcast after it's been live recorded. Correct. Those who are not listening live. And again, you can listen live. We're we're stream, We're trying to stream all of our episodes now of, of the Movie Byte podcast. Uh, and you can do that at moviebyte.com slash live. We've got it all set up. Uh, HTML5 streaming. And you, you can fall back on Flash if you've got an old browser. But it... Uh, you know, uh, it's all streaming right there. There's a chat room where you could talk to us. We'd love to get some more interaction, so you can do that. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, what, 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 what did you say that prompted me to say that? <laughs> um, we were just talking about the show schedule. You know how this is being live recorded, and you were saying, yeah, yeah. okay, when when is it your review? So is the review publish? will come out on Thursday, and for most people, you'll be listening to the podcast. It will be Thursday, uh, and uh, I will try to get the review written in time to post tomorrow. I'm going to try to get up in the morning and write the review because I, I wanted to write it today, but some things have come up and I actually drove down to Georgia and I'm in Georgia I'm in the same room with Joseph right now. So um, didn't get it posted. And uh, as I was driving, I noted uh, a friend of the show, Chad Hopkins was um, tweeting me, asking me and wanting to hear more about my opinion that I've mentioned on a previous episode. I don't remember which episode, but I mentioned my opinions on the back to the future series. Maybe we'll, review those uh at some point uh and i was thinking about addressing it on this podcast but we're we're pretty much out of time we're at uh we're at an hour 15 right now so um 
we're gonna we're gonna cut it off. Sorry, Chad, we didn't get to that. I will get to it, and I'll think on it some more, and let you know. Try to, and maybe we'll just like I said, maybe we'll dedicate a whole podcast to it. Mm. So, you know what time it is, Joseph? Something we said we were gonna do on this podcast. Yeah, we've got enough reviews to do it. We we cut we put the cutoff limit. We said we were gonna have to have at least ten reviews and ratings uh, in order to do this, and we we've got thirteen. So yeah, that's not bad considering the, the yeah. Yeah, the people only had a week to rate us on iTunes, and it's a lot of trouble, people, to open up iTunes, to go over to our podcast, and to go in there and hit, hey, uh, five stars. Yeah, and uh, this is a really great show. Enter. So, it's time to announce the winner. Now, I I, the, I have just refreshed Comment Cast. We still have 13 reviews. Uh, entries are closed. I'm going to export, file, export, CSV, all right? That all right. basically an Excel spreadsheet. And I'm going to open said sheet. Uh, if I can find out where I put it, I think I saved it to the wrong folder. Hmm. Uh, yes. There well, it is. while. Well, okay. Got it. All right. So I'm going to open that up. I'm going to select all the names. All right. Copy. I'm going to paste them. Now, this is, this is exciting. You're about to find out. I'm going to paste them into this random uh, winner picker online here. I'm going to say, pick random. Here we go. And the winner is Ronald P. Smith. All right? So if you're listening to this podcast, now what you need to do in order to uh, get this prize is you've got to tell us your address because the only thing we get from iTunes is your username. We don't even know if that's your real name. So Ronald P. Smith, if you can email us, info at moviebyte.com. All right? You will email us and say, yes, I am he. Here's where you send the Blu-ray. I have the Blu-ray in hand. It is in my car right outside this office right now, ready to be emailed out. Congratulations. Thank you so much for all of you who rated the show. That helps us get noticed in iTunes. And we, we still want your ratings. We need your ratings. We need your reviews. Uh, we want to get this show popular and get it out there where it can be seen. We, we would love to see this podcast on the front page of iTunes. So head on over there. Give us a review. We still would greatly appreciate it. Thank you to all who uh, rated and reviewed the show. Yeah, thanks a million. And Ronald, please contact us soon. All right. So uh, what are we going to talk about next week, Joseph? Well, we have another double feature episode because there are two movies we wanted to squeeze in before a few more exciting films happen, like The Hobbit. So during this week and uh, last week, two uh, films are coming out here that are interesting a little bit. Interesting. They're kind of ironic kind of because they have nothing. You know, kind of, sort of. We don't know. We'll see. Uh, these films are worth at least reviewing. You know, they're worth watching once. Okay, so there's uh, Killing Them Softly, starring Brad Pitt, and Playing for Keeps. Starring, uh, what is his name? Uh, Gerard Butler? Yeah, and Uma Thurman. Anyway, so these films, they look interesting, people, and those are the films we're going to review for next week. All right, so uh, that's what we're doing. Uh, so, Joseph, people, after listening to this podcast, they're going to be going crazy wanting to find out where you are because they're, they're, they love you so much, Joseph. They want to mm. know how they can follow you, how they can keep up with you online. I know that I want to keep up with me online. I know I'll be looking my, uh, my name up <laughs> online. So um, how can people do that? Yeah, so if they wanted to find me, stalk me, whatever, uh, find me on Facebook. I'm uh, uh, Joseph Darnell on Facebook, so if you want to, I've made it convenient. Just go to josephdarnell.com, and that takes you to my Facebook profile. On Twitter, I'm Joseph Darnell again, so just go to Joseph Darnell. Um, and then I have my own personal site, jivingjackalope.com, and I like to write uh, news and opinions and reviews about tech and tech culture and Apple products and perfectionism and movies. And all kinds that's of my stuff. thing. Yeah. 
Yep, you can find me uh, at uh, buzzingpixelcreative.com. I'd love for you to come hire me to do some design or some website or some editing. I do all kinds of things and uh, would love to have the work. So buzzingpixelcreative.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I am TJ Draper Pro. Uh, I will uh, endeavor at this point still. We don't get uh, all that much feedback that we can't keep up with it. So if you want to tweet at me, I'll I'll do my best to respond and interact with you. We love the interaction. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash TJ Draper. Uh, that's where you can find me at. And you can find MovieByte at moviebyte.com. I'm sorry, facebook.com. I always do that. Facebook.com slash moviebyte. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at moviebyte. And, uh, of course, the website, we post uh, several things every day, moviebyte.com. And, uh, yeah, thanks for listening to the show, and we'll be back with you again next week. <laughs>